welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. How are things? Well, you know, they're probably about as good as they could be. Stable as a table, you know? That's, Ooh, that's nice. Yeah, I like that phrase. Um, I've been using it a lot lately. It's probably going to drive my husband crazy because we're both working from home now. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, we're right now we're we're doing a lot of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. You know, people are going back to their favorite TV shows and um, favorite music and old episodes of podcasts. Yeah, you want some comfort. You want some comfort. Yeah. So um, I decided I'm going to throw it back. (laughs) Throw it back for our listeners. And I'm going to go all the way back to a sequel to one of our earliest episodes, mm-hmm. episode eight, which is about weird animals. Uh-huh. I'm going to do Weird Animals 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, so I picked a handful of uh, equally weird animals. Um, oh, spoiler alert. There's going to be some grossness. Ah, oh, Lauren. I know, but you know what? It's about knowledge. It's about the acquisition of knowledge. So I need you to steal yes. yourself. Mm-hmm. I need you to put some iron in your spine, and you're going to hear the word poop at least three times. Oh, she just passed out. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with, uh, 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 I think they're cute. Some people find them terrifying, but the animal is called a shoebill. Do you know what a shoebill is? A what? A shoebill. It's a bird. Never heard of it. Okay. So the shoebill is also known as a whale head or a whale-headed stork or the shoe-billed stork. Um, It's basically a very large stork-like bird. And I'm going to provide a photo for you to look at that we will also be posting on our our Twitters. (laughs) It looks like a Pokemon. It does look like a Pokemon. It looks like, oh, who's that bird Pokemon that walks around? It looks like us like a Psyduck, kind of. Oh, yeah, kind of. It has a very large bill. It has cartoon-like <laughs> eyes. Um, and we'll post a picture, but I think they're kind of adorable, but some people find them kind of terrifying, partially because they're so tall. Mm-hmm. So their typical height range um, between 43 and 55 inches, and some specimens reaching as much as five feet high or 152 seven centimeters, Oof. which is crazy. Uh, their wingspan is seven feet to eight feet wide. Yikes. Yeah, um, which is 230 to 260 centimeters about. Uh, and their weight has reportedly ranged from four to seven kilograms between eight and 16 pounds. And a male will weigh on average around 12 pounds and is larger than the typical female of 11 pounds. Um, the signature feature of the species is its huge bulbous bill, <laughs> uh, which is straw colored with erratic grayish markings. They're usually like kind of a bluish gray color. Mm-hmm. Um, the sharp edges in, in the mandibles help the shoe bill to decapitate their prey and also to discard any vegetation after prey has caught. And we'll talk about how they have, they actually like <sighs> eat their food in a moment. Um, as in the pelicans, they're actually in the pelican um, okay. family. Uh, they don't, they look like storks, but they're actually closer to pelicans. Um, and where do they live? They live, uh, in Africa, tropical East Africa. Okay. In large swamps from Sudan to Zambia. So they're an African bird. Um, the, so as in with pelicans, the upper mandible is strongly keeled, which means that it's curved downward. So it has like that overhanging kind of like, um, 
it's got like a nail, like a sharp okay. nail at the end. Uh, and the dark colored legs are fairly long, but the shoebill's feet are exceptionally large, um, with the middle toe reaching about 6.6 to 7.3 inches in length. So it, the proportions of this bird are just like weirdly Very huge. Weird. Yeah, and weird. Um, the neck is relatively shorter and thicker than other long-legged wading birds, such as herons and cranes, and the wings are broad and well adapted to soaring. So they they spread those big wings out and they just float along the the wind. Um, they have been a beloved species for a long time. They've been around since at least the early Holocene, which the Holocene wow. is the era that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it started about eleven thousand six hundred and fifty years ago, uh, and they appear in the artwork of the ancient Egyptians. Oh. Um, Arabs reportedly called the bird Abu Markab or father of a slipper. So like the shoe imagery really uh, is a thing for these guys. So how they catch their prey. All right. Ready for this? The shoe bill will stand there motionless as a statue and wait for some poor lungfish or baby crocodile to swim by. Then the bird will pounce forward all five feet of it with its massive bill wide open engulfing its target along with water, mud, vegetation, and probably any other hapless fish minding its own business. So clamping down on its prey, the bird will start to swing its massive head back and forth, tipping out whatever stuff it doesn't want to eat. Uh, When there's nothing but lungfish or crocodile left, The shoebill will give it a quick decapitation with the sharp edges of the bill and swallow away. Um, It also is relatively silent, but it makes awesome machine gun noises. Uh, Shoebills uh, engage in what's known as bill clattering around the nest or when greeting another bird. So it sounds like a machine gun because the clattering is like really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, when young are begging for food, they call out with a sound uncannily like human hiccups. So baby uh, shoebills sound like... Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they eat cute. crocodile heads? They eat like baby crocodiles. Okay. Yeah. So they decapitate them so to kill them okay. so they don't move around and then they swallow, swallow, swallow. So these gross. are like carnivorous birds. Yes. These are carnivorous birds. They eat <sighs> like fish and baby crocodiles and whatever else is just happens to be around them. Um, so there's also something gross I have to mention. Of course. Okay. Are you ready? Of course there's something oh, gross okay. you have to mention. This is the Lauren episode about animals. I know. Uh, they poop on their own legs. Okay. They, they poop on their own legs because it keeps them cool. And as with other birds, poop is mostly liquid and heat from warm blood passing through the legs is used to evaporate the liquid waste resulting in a cooler blood circulating through the stork itself. Um, the science of this is fascinating, but when you get right down to it, uh, this already mean looking bird with a huge clattering death bill now has poop legs. So... So it's basically the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> so it's not like humans eat it. No. Um, apparently they're very docile around humans. Like mm-hmm. they don't, they're pretty chill birds to begin with. So they're very popular um, amongst uh, uh, bird spotters, like okay. um, mm-hmm. bird watchers, because you can get pretty close to them. Um, they're so big. They're just kind of like meh about people for the most okay. part. They're not going to come and try to munch your arm off. No, absolutely okay. not. Um, so let's get let's get a little bit nicer. We're gonna move to something a little bit nicer. The narwhal. Oh yeah, yeah the unicorn of the ocean. The unicorn of the sea, the narwhal or the narwhal. It's another alternative okay. spelling and and pronunciation. Uh, it is a medium-sized toothed whale that possesses a large tusk from a protruding canine tooth. Uh, it lives year-round in the Arctic waters around Greenland, Canada, and Russia, and is one of two living species of whale in the family Monodontidae, along with the beluga whale. So the beluga and the narwhal are related. 
When you say monodontine, that yes. makes me think of one tooth. It does make you think of one tooth, and that's what it means. Yes. Um, the narwhal males are distinguished by a long, straight helical or spiral tusk, uh, which is an elongated upper left canine. Uh, narwhals have been harvested for hundreds of years by Inuit people in northern Canada and Greenland for meat and ivory, and a uh, regulated subsistence hunt continues. So um, they're still being hunted by the Inuit people in mm-hmm. northern Canada, um, but it is a subsistence, subsistence hunt, which means mm-hmm. that they're, it's highly regulated. So narwhal, where do we get the name? It's derived from the Old Norse word nar, meaning corpse, uh, in reference to the animal's gray. I know. Uh, it, it has, they have like a grayish mottled pigmentation, mm-hmm. uh, like that of a drowned sailor, and it's summertime habit of lying still at or near the surface of the sea. It's called logging. They just kind of like lay on their side and float gently close to the surface of the sea. Um, as you mentioned before, the scientific name Monodon Monoceros, which is their scientific name, is derived from the Greek one tooth, one horn. Ooh. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, the narwhal is most closely related to the beluga whale. Uh, together, these two species comprise the only extant members of the family Monodontidae. Okay. Um, and they're sometimes referred to as white whales, both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Monodontidae are distinguished by their medium size. Uh, pronounced melons, which is that big, little, big old melon part on the top mm-hmm. of their head. Uh, that's their sensory organ. Okay. Um, short snouts and the absence of a true dorsal fin. So if you if you okay. notice on beluga whales and narwhals, they don't have like that top fin. Yeah. Um, they think that the reason behind that, and I may mention this later in my, uh, is because they swim so close to the ice that they evolve to uh, have their dorsal fin kind of removed mm-hmm. because they're always like scraping their backs up against ice. Um, so although the narwhal and the beluga are classified as separate genera with one species each, there is some evidence that they may very rarely interbreed. <gasps> Yeah. The complete skull of an anomalous whale was discovered in West Greenland circa 1990, and it was described by marine zoologists as unlike any known species, but with features midway between a narwhal and a beluga, consistent with the hypothesis that the anomalous whale was a narwhal-beluga hybrid. And in 2019, this was confirmed by DNA. (gasps) Which is kind of cool. Star-crossed lovers. Star-crossed lovers. But I, I am a narwhal and you, you are a beluga. How could we possibly make this work? <laughs> and with their love was developed the narluga. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I mentioned before, the pigmentation of narwhals is a model pattern with blackish brown markings over a white background. <laughs> Very beautiful. Uh, they are darkest when born and they become whiter with age. And white patches develop on the navel and genital slit at sexual maturity. So just FYI, check that genital slit to see how old that narwhal is. Uh, and, <laughs> and old males may be almost pure white. So the wow. whiter the narwhal, the older, the older it is. It is. Mm-hmm. Okay. I learned something very cool okay. about narwhals. Yeah. So um, last year when I was like super into books about historic poisonings, mm-hmm. um, there was a really great section that was talking about how kings and queens of the royal courts in um, in Europe mm-hmm. believed that unicorn horns were super important and that they could be tested, that they could use that to test for poisons in their food. Yes. And it turned out that most of these so-called unicorn horns Mm -hmm. that these kings were carrying around were actually narwhal horns that had been harvested by like whalers and then you know sold off as like Mm -hmm. a you know cheapo thing and then people you know then resold them for 
for so more much money, yeah. money and mm-hmm. been like, yep, it is a unicorn horn. Wink, 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 wink. So they would either carry around like in their pockets and like put it in their food to like make sure it didn't like, I don't know, turn a different color or something like yeah, that if there was poison in their food. Or there were other people that would then grind them up and then use them oh, and, like see. as like a kind of like a bazoar if they thought that they had been mm-hmm. poisoned, that they would then eat this powdered quote unquote unicorn horn which is actually a narwhal tusk and then that would be like a neutralization of the poison or whatever that's interesting well i mean speaking of the tusk let's talk about what the tusk Uh is and what it's for so it is the most conspicuous characteristic of the male narwhal Um, it is a single long tusk which is in fact as i mentioned before a canine tooth that projects from the left side of the upper jaw through the lip and forms a left-handed helix spiral so does a lady narwhal not have anything so a lady narwhal uh sometimes has a tusk like a little uh usually smaller yeah it's typically smaller with a less noticeable spiral it's kind of like a wider spiral um, but only about 15% of females grow a tusk. Okay. She can. Doesn't yeah. always. It's, it's her prerogative. Um, the tusk grows through life, uh, reaching a length of about 1.5 to 3.1 meters or 4.9 to 10.2 feet. That's pretty big. Uh, yeah. It's hollow and it usually weighs around 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. Yeah. About one in 500 males has two tusks occurring when the right canine also grows out through the lip. Ooh. Yeah. Um, usually, again, the canine tooth only on the left side of the upper jaw becomes a tusk. And uh, collected in 1684, there is only one known case of a female growing a second tusk. Ooh. So when you see like cutesy drawings of narwhals, they have like, you see their little cute little faces and mm-hmm. their little smile. And then the tusk looks like a unicorn tusk yeah. that's growing out of the middle of their forehead. Bye, buddy. Hope Bye, you buddy. find your dad. Oh. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> narwhal. Um, but in fact, they grow like straight out through their mouth. So it's like if your oh. canine tooth just started growing straight out. And here's a picture of the narwhal tusk growing straight out. Oh, and it's like... It it almost looks like a uh, a shot. Like this this one picture of him from underneath. Like the his tail is like a plunger and then his body and then the, 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 the tusk is like the needle of a shot. Yeah, it looks like a, like a vaccine plunger or something like that. Um, yeah, but you can see like the spiral yeah. and it just comes straight out of the front of his face, um, which seems, I don't know, it seems like it would really get in the way. Yeah. So scientists have long speculated on the biological function of the tusk. Uh-huh. Like, why does this tooth just grow out of the front of it? Why did they evolve to do this? So proposed functions include use of the tusk as a weapon, as mm-hmm. you could possibly imagine, uh, for opening breathing holes in sea ice to like Ooh, poke okay. it out. okay. It's his own little drill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in feeding uh, as an acoustic organ and as a secondary sex characteristic. Okay. Um, Maybe the- their eyesight's really bad and it's like their own walking <laughs> stick. Yeah, exactly. It's like a little walking stick. Uh, the leading theory has long been that the narwhal tusk serves as a secondary sex character of males for nonviolent assessment of hierarchical status on the basis of relative tusk size. So the so bigger the tusk. So if you have tusk, a bigger tusk, then you're important. Yeah, we'll say. Um, however, detailed analysis reveals that the tusk is a highly innervated sensory organ with millions of nerve endings connecting seawater stimuli in the external ocean environment with the brain. So basically it's like a giant tongue to a certain or like um like a antenna okay so like your tooth if you think about it it makes sense because your tooth has a lot of nerve endings in it Uh uh-huh 
So this tooth just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and has a lot of nerve endings. And so it can kind of like taste or feel what is going on in the ocean environment around him. Um, so the rubbing of tusks together by male narwhals, which is called tusking, uh, is thought to be a method of communicating information about characteristics of the water each has traveled through rather than the previously assumed posturing display of aggressive male-to-male rivalry. Mm. So they thought it was like them like clashing, like, yeah. oh, God, me, me, me. Uh, but in fact, it's just like, hey, where have you been? Well, I've been here. Like, <laughs> boop, 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 boop. And they're like, thanks, buddy. You know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of cool that they use it as like, um, like an information wow. like, transmitter, basically, which is kind of cool. Um, in August 2016, drone videos of narwhal surface feeding in Tremblay Sound in Nunavut shows that the tusk was used to tap and stun small Arctic cod, making them easier to catch for feeding. So they were like knocking out fish <laughs> so that they could get I mean, them. If I had a stick attached to my face. I might as well use really. it for food, you know. Um, it is important to note, however, that the tusk cannot serve as a critical function for narwhal survival because females who generally don't have tusks mm-hmm. still manage to live longer than the males and they mm, occur in the okay. same areas. Therefore, the ger- general scientific consensus is that narwhal tusk is a sexual trait, much like the antlers of a stag, the mane of a lion, or the feathers of a peacock. Yeah. Um, so narwhals, let's talk about what they look like. Their neck vertebrae are jointed like those of land mammals instead of being fused together as in most whales. Oh. So they have a great range of neck flexibility. Um, and the the lack of dorsal fin and this neck vertebrae thing are shared also by the beluga whale. Mm-hmm. Um, they normally congregate in groups of about five to 10, uh, and sometimes up to 20 individuals outside the summer and groups may be nurseries with only females and young, or can contain only post-dispersal juveniles or adult males. Adult males are known as bulls. Okay. Uh, but mixed groups can occur at any time of year. And in the summer, several groups come together, forming larger aggregations, which can contain from 500 to almost a thousand individuals. That's a lot of narwhals. Yeah. It's a lot of narwhals. So let's talk a little bit about like what they were used for and also like the mythology around them. Um, in Inuit legend, the narwhal's tusk was created when a woman with a harpoon rope tied around her waist was dragged into the ocean after the harpoon had struck a large narwhal. She was transformed into a narwhal and her hair, which she was wearing into a twisted knot became the characteristic spiral narwhal tusk. Um, as you mentioned before, some medieval Europeans believed narwhal tusks to be the horns from the legendary unicorn. Uh, as these horns were considered to have magic powers, such as, as you said, neutralizing poison and curing melancholia, uh, Vikings and other northern traders were able to sell them for many times their weight in gold. Uh, the tusks were used to make cups that were thought to negate any poison that may have been slipped into the drink. And a narwhal tusk exhibited at Warwick Castle is, according to legend, the rib of the mythical dun cow. Uh, in 1555, Olas Magnus published a drawing of a fish-like creature with a horn on its forehead, correctly identifying it as a narwhal. Um, this is probably the first instance of it being called a narwhal. What year was that? 1555. Yeah. Uh, during the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth I received a carved and bejeweled narwhal tusk worth 10,000 pounds sterling, which is the 16th century equivalent cost of a castle, which was probably <laughs> approximately 1.5 to 2.5 million pounds. Uh, she received this from Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who proposed the tusk was from a sea unicorn. Uh, the tusks were staples of the cabinet of curiosities. Europeans' knowledge of the tusks' origin developed gradually during the age of exploration as explorers and naturalists began to visit Arctic regions themselves. 
Uh, also, it should be mentioned that November 29th, 2019, a Polish chef working at the Fishmongers Hall used a narwhal tusk in defense against an attacking terrorist during the 2019 London <laughs> Bridge attack. So he uh, managed to stop him from doing that thanks to a narwhal tusk. Wow. All right. We got to get, you got to get dark again. I'm sorry for this. I like talking about I know. Narwhals are so cute, but we close in something nice. Um, lampreys. Oh. Yeah. So I'm going to show yeah, you a picture yeah. no, of a lamprey. No, don't show me a picture. You don't want to see a picture of a lamprey? You can just lamprey? describe them for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I picked a really good photo too. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I'll show you guys on, on, on the, the social meds. Yeah. On social meds. Uh, lampreys, sometimes inaccurately called lamprey eels. They're not actually uh-huh. eels are an ancient extant lineage of jawless fish. They are a yeah. fish, not an eel. Mm. Uh, the adult lamprey may be characterized by a toothed, funnel-like, sucking mouth. The common name lamprey is probably derived from Latin lampetra, which may mean stone liquor. Uh, lambere means to lick, and petra means stone, though the etymology is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are about 38 known extant species of lampreys and five known extinct species. Parasitic carnivorous species are the most well-known and feed by boring into the flesh of other fish to suck their blood. Right. Uh, but only 18 species of lampreys engage in this micropredatory lifestyle. <laughs> only 18 species. Uh, they live mostly in coastal and fresh waters and are found in most temperate regions except those in Africa. Unfortunately, they attach their mouth parts to the target animal's body, then use three horny plates, which are known as laminae, on the tip of their piston-like tongue. One transversely and two longitudinally placed to scrape through surface tissue until they reach bodily fluids. Mm. The teeth on their oral disc are primarily used to help the animal attach itself to its prey. So it like locks in. Um, These are made of keratin and other proteins. Uh, Lamprey teeth have a hollow core to give room for replacement teeth growing under the old ones. So they just kind of like replace. (laughs) So many teeth. So many teeth. Oh, my God. Um, Some of the original blood feeding forms have evolved into species that feed on both blood and flesh. And some who have become specialized to eat flesh and may even invade the internal organs of the host. (laughs) A study of the stomach contents of some lampreys have shown the remains of intestines, fins, and vertebrae from their prey. Jesus. And although attacks on humans do occur, they will generally not attack humans unless starved. So as long as you don't get into the, into the path of a hungry lamprey, you are fine. Um, the lamprey has been extensively studied because its relatively simple brain is thought in many respects to reflect the brain structure of early vertebrate ancestors. And beginning in the 1970s, Sten Grillner and his st- colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm followed on from extensive work on the lamprey started by Carl Rovanen in the 1960s that used the lamprey as a model system to work out the fundamental principles of motor control in vertebrates starting in the spinal cord and working toward the brain. So it's kind of like how we use... Um, Fruit flies. Fruit flies for genetic studies. The lamprey has such a, a, a basic brain, primitive brain, that it's easy to study, and so they can do a lot of experiments on it. Uh, lampreys have long been used as food for people. Uh, they were highly appreciated by the ancient Romans, and during the Middle Ages, they were widely eaten by the upper classes throughout Europe, especially during Lent when eating meat was prohibited on account of their meaty taste so and here, texture. Have this have this toothy tube. Have this toothy tube. Delicious, delicious. Num, num, nums. Taste just like eyeballs. Oh, uh, yeah. They've got eyeballs. They got two like little gross eyeballs on either side of their gross ass mouth. Um, I'm looking at my pictures. Hold on. Let me take a look. My picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They got two gross like 
bluish gray eyeballs that are just behind the freaky mouth. <laughs> They're not beautiful is what I'm no. saying. Um, King Henry I of England is claimed to have been so fond of lampreys that he often ate them late into life and poor health against the advice of his physician concerning their richness and is said to have died from eating, quote, a surfeit of lampreys. Whether or not his lamprey indulgence actually caused his death is unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, on March 4th, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation pie was made by the Royal Air Force using lampreys. And in southwestern Europe, uh, specifically Portugal, Spain, and France, the northern half of Finland, and in Latvia, where lamprey is routinely sold in supermarkets, larger lampreys are still a highly prized delicacy. Uh, Arroz con lampreya, or lamprey rice, is one of the most important dishes in Portuguese cuisine. Uh, They are also consumed in Sweden, Russia, Lithuania, Estonia, Japan, and South Korea. In Finland, they are commonly sold pickled in vinegar. Um, the mucus and serum of uh, several lamprey, mm. lamprey species are known to be toxic and require thorough cleaning before cooking and consumption. So watch out. Uh, in Britain, lampreys are commonly used as bait, normally as dead bait. Uh, northern pike, perch, and chub all can be caught on lampreys. And frozen lampreys can be bought for most bait and tackle shops. Uh, sea lampreys have become a major pest in the Northern American Great Lakes. Yeah. It is generally believed that they gained access to the lakes via canals during the early 20th century. Thanks a lot, Erie Canal. Uh, But this theory is controversial, actually. Uh, They are considered an invasive species, have no natural enemies in the lakes, and prey on many species of commercial value, such as lake trout. Mm -hmm. Um, They are now found mostly in the streams that feed the lakes and controlled with special barriers to prevent the upstream movement of adults or by the application of toxicants called lampricides, which are harmless to most other aquatic species. However, these programs are complicated and expensive, and they do not eradicate the lampreys from the lakes, but merely keep them in check. So we have a problem near, around us uh, with lampreys as an um, invasive species. So, All right. And finally, let's go with something nice. The aardvark. Okay. Yeah. The aardvark is a medium-sized burrowing nocturnal mammal native to Africa. It is the only living species of the order Tubuli dentata, although other prehistoric species and genera of Tubuli dentata are known. It means uh, tubal tooth. Tube tooth. Tube tooth. Um, unlike other insectivores, it has a long pig-like snout, which is used to sniff out food. It's very cute. Uh, it roams over most of the southern two-thirds of the African continent, avoiding areas that are mainly rocky because it hurts their little feet. <laughs> Uh, a nocturnal feeder, it subsists on ants and termites, uh, which it will dig out of their hills using its sharp claws and powerful legs. It also digs to create burrows in which to live and rear its young, and it is not currently endangered. Uh, aardvarks are known as afrotheres, a clade which also includes elephants, manatees, and hyraxes. The name aardvark, A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K, is Afrikaans, Mm -hmm. and it comes from earlier Afrikaans, uh, the word is erdvark, and means earth pig or ground pig, Okay, uh, because of its burrowing habits, as mentioned before. Its weight is typically between 130 and 180 pounds, uh, and aardvark's length is usually between 3.5 and 4.27 feet, and can reach lengths of 7 feet 3 inches with its tail. Uh, it is 24 inches tall at the shoulders and have a girth of about three feet. It is the largest member of the proposed clade, Afroinsectophilia. 
The aardvark is a pale yellowish gray in color and also stained reddish brown by soil because it's always in the dirt. Its coat is thin and the animal's primary protection is its tough skin. Its hair is short on its head and tail. However, its legs tend to have longer hair. So it's kind of like balding. It's kind of cute. The hair on the majority of its body is grouped into clusters of three to four hairs. Um, The hair surrounding the nostrils is dense to help filter particulate matter out as it digs. And its tail is very thick at the base and gradually tapers like a rat tail. It's kind of gross. Um, the snout again re- resembles an elongated pig snout, and the mouth is small and tubular, typical of species that feed on ants and termites. The aardvark has a long, thin, snake-like protruding tongue, which can be as much as twelve inches long or thirty centimeters, and elaborate structures supporting a keen sense of smell. Uh, the ears, which are very effective, are disproportionately long, about uh, nine inches long or twenty to twenty-five centimeters, and the eyes are small for its head and consist only of rods. Aardvarks do not oh. have any cones. Yep. How about that? Yeah. So they only seem bl- in black, black and, and white. white. Yep. Uh, they are nocturnal and solitary. They feed almost exclusively on ants and termites. The only fruit eaten by the aardvark is the aardvark cucumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's pretty. It's very pretty specific. Um, they have a, um, uh, what's the word? Symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. So uh, the aardvark uh, eats the cucumber mm-hmm. and then poops out the seeds and then it cultivates and it's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they have a symbiotic relationship, which is why it's called the aardvark cucumber. Um, it is known to be a good swimmer. Did you know that? No, Aardvarks I didn't. can swim like the Dickens. Um, and they have been witnessed successfully swimming in strong currents and it can dig a yard of tunnel in about five minutes, but otherwise moves fairly slowly. Uh, in African folklore, the aardvark is much admired because of its diligent quest for food and its fearless response to soldier ants. Uh, Hausa magicians make charms from the heart, skin, forehead, and nails of the aardvark, which they then proceed to pound together with the root of a certain tree. Uh, wrapped in a piece of skin and worn on the chest, the charm is said to give the owner the ability to pass through walls or roofs at night. Well, we should... I know. Well, we, we should both... try that. I, I'd try it. Um <laughs> The charm is said to be used by burglars and those seeking to visit young girls without their parents' oh, permission. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, some tribes such as the Margbetu, Ayanda, and Logo will use aardvark teeth to make bracelets, which are regarded as good luck charms. Um, the meat, which apparently has a resemblance to pork, is eaten in also certain cultures. Hmm. The Egyptian god Set is usually depicted with the head of an unidentified animal whose similarity to an aardvark has been noted okay. in scholarship. Also, the titular character of Arthur, uh, as you may know, an animated television series for children based on a book series and produced by WGBH, shown in more than 180 countries, is an aardvark. I was going to say, your description of the aardvark doesn't look anything like Arthur. No, and I feel like if Arthur (laughs) had a longer snout, he wouldn't be as um, adorable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it's creative license. Sure. What are you going to do? And finally, um, there is a uh, 300-issue comic book series by Dave Sim, which is called Cerebus the Aardvark, which has been going on for a long time. Uh, So that is my quick and dirty on weird animals. Uh, And so my quiz today... That wasn't as gross as I thought it was going to be. No, it's not that bad. It really isn't. So uh, my quiz today is called Weird Non-Animals, a quiz on creatures of film, literature, and folklore. Question number one. 
We're all familiar with the classic horror monster of the vampire, but in 2014, Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement made a film based on what it would look like if roommate vampires stopped being polite and started getting real. What is the name of this Kiwi mockumentary movie? Question number two. My absolute favorite character in Star Trek, besides Luxana Troy, is Elam Garrick, the exiled spy and tailor from an enemy planet in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Portrayed charmingly by Andrew J. Robinson, Garrick is a constant thorn in the side of the Federation. Or is he? Name the alien species that Garrick is, which really has nothing to do with Courtney, Kim, or Chloe. Question number three. In Scottish mythology, these creatures are people, usually women, who change from seal to human form by shedding their skin. The folktales frequently revolve around the females being coerced into relationships with humans by someone stealing and hiding their seal skin, which is probably very soft. What is the name of these aquatic mythological creatures? Question number four. In the novel The Centaur, the author depicts a rural Pennsylvanian town as seen through the optics of the myth of the centaur, an unknown and marginalized local school teacher, just like the mythological Chiron did for Prometheus, gave up his life for the future of his son, who had chosen to be an independent artist in New York. Who is the author of the centaur, a man who seemed to have dominated the literary world in the 20th century with his tales of repressed masculinity and also the witches of Eastwick? Question number five. Within the context of Japanese films, Godzilla's exact origins vary, but is generally depicted as an enormous, violent, prehistoric sea monster, awakened and empowered by nuclear radiation. It has been a staple of Japan's kaiju films for decades, and has spread all over the world as a disaster movie touchstone. Within 10 years, when did Godzilla first appear on film? Question number six. The epic sci-fi movie Avatar was heralded as one of the greatest movies ever made in 2009. Today, maybe not so much. Either way, James Cameron is planning on doing three more of them. The film is set in the mid-22nd century where humans are colonizing Pandora, a lush, habitable moon of a gas giant in the Alpha Centauri star system, in order to mine the mineral Unobtainium, a room-temperature superconductor. The expansion of the mining colony threatens the continued existence of a local tribe of a humanoid species indigenous to Pandora, called what? Question number seven. True or false, the characters of Oompa Loompas, created by Roald Dahl, were only seen in the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and don't appear in any of his other books. Question number eight. This seeming nonsense poem, written in 1871 by Lewis Carroll for Through the Looking Glass, begins... "'Twas brillig in the li- slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borer groves, and the momraths outgrabe." What is the title of this poem, which is also the name of the dragon in the story of the poem? Question number nine. This father of the zombie film was best known for his series of gruesome and satirical horror films about zombie apocalypses, including Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Name this influential and pioneering director. And finally, question number ten. Speaking of nonsense words, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift depicts Lemuel Gulliver traveling to fictional and faraway places such as Lilliput, Brobdignag, Glubdribdrab, Balnabarbi, and Japan. The book also gave the English language some useful words, some of which we still use. One term defined as a crude, brutish, or obscenely coarse person is used today in a couple of contexts, some of which you can turn alchemy-like into wisdom. What is this word? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers.
Yes. I'm very proud of this quiz. The topic, not so much. Oh, this <laughs> quiz, I am, a, I am all about. I was very proud. Okay. You ready? Okay. Question number one. We're all familiar with the classic horror monster of the vampire, but in 2014, Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clements made a film based on what it would look like if roommate vampires stopped being polite and started getting real. What is the name of this Kiwi mockumentary movie? That's what we do in the shadows. It is what we do in the shadows. Uh, the roommates are Viago, played by Taika Watiti. He's a kind of dandy and rice kind of vampire. Uh, Vladislav, played by Jermaine Clement. He is a more Gary Oldman kind of sexy hedonistic <laughs> vampire. Uh, Johnny Brew plays Deacon, a Bela Lugosi vampire. And Ben Franchin plays Peter, a full-on Count Orlock and Nosferatu vampire. Uh, about 125 hours of footage were shot, most of which was improvisation from the oh cast, which is amazing. The process of editing that down to a 90-minute movie took almost a year. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, Taika Waititi based his performance on his mother, which is really That's cute. That's very funny. And then the TV show is apparently very good. Yes. I, I In my uh, quarantine for the next however long, I plan to start watching mm-hmm. that as well as many other TV shows that I haven't gotten around to. So... Uh, speaking of TV shows, question number two. My absolute favorite character in Star Trek, besides Luxana Troy, is Elam Garrick, the exiled spy and Taylor from an enemy planet in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Portrayed charmingly by Andrew J. Robinson, Garrick is a constant thorn in the side of the Federation. Or is he? Name the alien species that Garrick is, which really has nothing to do with Courtney, Kim, or Chloe. Is he a Klingon? No, he is a Cardassian. What? Yeah. Uh, Cardassians, they were devised in 1991 for the series Star Trek The Next Generation before being used in the subsequent series of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. Um, they're the big bads of Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. They're like the enemy. Um, they're humanoid with gray-green skin and a lot of bony protrusions on their faces, making them look like snakes or reptiles. Ooh. I'm surprised um, they haven't gotten sued. Yeah. <laughs> they have a lot of um, Nazi qualities. There's a very like Nazi esque, mm, okay. like World War Two, post World War Two esque like uh, storyline that goes on in Deep Space Nine. It's very interesting. Huh. Uh, question number three: In Scottish mythology, uh, these creatures are people, usually women, who change from seal to human form by shedding their skin. The folk tales frequently revolve around the females being coerced into relationships with humans by someone stealing and hiding their seal skin, which is probably very soft. What is the name of these aquatic mythological creatures? Oh, man. When you tell me what the answer is, I'm going to be really mad at myself. Because um, the only thing I can think of is a banshee right now. Okay. And I just can't. Their skin is very soft. A fury. A fury? They're, do you want me to tell you? Yeah. They're called selkies. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Scotch language word selkie is diminutive for selk, which strictly speaking means gray seal. Uh, they are found in folktales and mythology originating from the northern isles of Scotland. Okay. 
Uh, Question number four. In the novel The Centaur, the author depicts a rural Pennsylvanian town as seen through the optics of the myth of the centaur. An unknown and marginalized local school teacher, just like the mythological Chiron did for Prometheus, gave up his life for the future of his son, who had chosen to be an independent artist in New York. Who is the author of The Centaur, a man who seemed to have dominated the literary world in the 20th century with his tales of repressed masculinity and also The Witches of Eastwick? Is this John Updike? It is John Updike. Uh, best known for his Rabbit series. I have never read a single Updike novel, and I don't plan to yeah, anytime soon. not about soon. a rabbit. Very confusing. Yeah, not about a rabbit. I don't plan to read any of them anytime soon, but that might change. I mean, I might run out of books to read. So, <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why he's so famous, I'm sure. Okay, question number five. Within the context of the Japanese films, Godzilla's exact origins vary, but is generally depicted as an enormous, violent, prehistoric sea monster awakened and empowered by nuclear radiation. It has been a staple of Japan's kaiju films for decades and has spread all over the world as disaster movie touchstone. Within 10 years, when did Godzilla first appear on film? I feel like it's really early, like surprisingly early. Okay. So I'm going to say, with it, so within 10 years, yeah. I'm going to hedge my bets and say 1920. 1954. Wow. Yeah. Um, the fir- character first appeared in Ishiro Honda's 1954 film just called Godzilla and became a worldwide pop culture icon appearing in various media, including 32 films produced by Toho three Hollywood films, and numerous video games, novels, comic books, and television shows. Uh, Godzilla has been dubbed King of the Monsters, a phrase first used in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, (laughs) the Americanized version of the original film. (laughs) Question number six. The epic sci-fi movie Avatar was heralded as one of the greatest movies ever made in 2009. Today, Maybe not so much. Either way, James Cameron is planning on doing three more of them. The film is set in the mid-22nd century where humans are colonizing Pandora, a lush, habitable moon of a gas giant in the Alpha Centauri star system in order to mine the mineral unobtainium, (sighs) a room temperature superconductor. The expansion of the mining colony threatens the continued existence of a local tribe of a humanoid species indigenous to Pandora called what? This is the only thing I know about this movie. The Na'vi. The Na'vi. I was so, like, please don't say Navi in your question because I have nowhere else to go. No. I saw it. I don't remember a single thing about it. A lot of people went absolutely crazy. Yeah. My, I don't understand. I think it was because of the 3D. Maybe. I guess. Maybe because the graphics were like super advanced for the time. Either way, I don't think it's held up that well. I don't know about you. I've never seen it. It's not good. Um, the story's <laughs> bad. Um, th- I mean, just unobtainium, really. Like that's mm-hmm. like, that's the word you call it in... In like the planning stages, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, apparently there's, he signed up for three more and the next one's coming out in 2021. So who knows? Right. Question number seven, true or false. The characters of Oompa Loompas created by Roald Dahl were only seen in the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and don't appear in any other, other of his books. Say false. It is false. Uh, they're also featured in the sequel, which I didn't know about called Charlie, Charlie and the, the Great, Great Glass, Glass Elevator. Elevator. Um, that book involves Charlie and Wonka going on space adventures in Wonka's glass elevator. Uh, there was going to be a third book called Charlie in the White House, where Charlie's family and Wonka are invited to dinner by the President of the United States, President Gillagrass, as thanks for saving him in the previous book. Wow. Um, Dahl apparently only wrote one chapter, which is on display in the Roald Dahl Museum and Story Center in Great Missenden, UK. Question number eight. 
Uh, this seeming nonsense poem, written in 1871 by Lewis Carroll for Through the Looking Glass, begins, "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves, and the momraths outgrabe." Uh, what is the title of this poem, which is also the name of the dragon in the story of the poem? Jabberwocky. It is Jabberwocky. At one point, I had this poem memorized, memorized word for word, which I would pull out at parties and Very just popular. like thrill all my theater friends so because popular. I was an extremely cool person. Um, while it seems nonsense, all of the words actually have real meanings, either archaically or made up by Carol. And quite a few of them made it into the Oxford English Dictionary. Again, I was a very cool young adult. Um, question number nine. This father of the zombie film was best known for his series of gruesome and satirical horror films about zombie apocalypses, including Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Name this influential and pioneering director. It is Pittsburgh's own George Romero. Yes, he went to Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. Uh, He battled lung cancer in the late years of his life, but worked almost up until the very end, dying in 2017. In May 2019, the University of Pittsburgh announced it had acquired George Romero's archives and that a multimedia exhibit be created and open to the public in the university's Hillman Library. I knew you'd know that. Mm. Uh, Question number 10. Speaking of nonsense words, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift depicts Lemuel Gulliver traveling to fictional and faraway places such as Lilliput, Brobdignag, Glubdubdrib, Balnebarbi, and Japan. The book also gave the English language some useful words, some of which we still use. One term defined as a crude, brutish, or obscenely coarse person is used today in a couple of contexts, some of which you can turn alchemy-like into wisdom. What is this word? I mean, your clue makes me think of my brother, my brother, and me. Yes. Mackerel. <laughs> Is that a real word that we use? Is that a real word that we use? Uh, I I don't know. Okay. Uh, the answer is Yahoo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was somewhere in the in my brain. That's all okay. right. It's all right. Uh, the Yahoos, specifically in Gulliver's Travels, are primitive creatures obsessed with pretty stones that they find by digging in mud, thus representing the distasteful materialism and ignorant elitism Swift encountered in Britain at the time. <laughs> They are ruled over by the Huynims, which are a race of gentle and intelligent talking horses. I've never read it, um, but it certainly sounds... It's long, too. Like yeah. there are, He goes to a lot of places and talks to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, my... Mm, wonderful. My quick and dirty about a couple of things. That was wonderful, Lord. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for listening and participating. Um, <laughs> and thank you all for listening and participating at home. <laughs> We assume you do that. Yeah, we assume. I don't know. Um, thanks so much, you guys. I'm sure you're all listening to a lot of podcasts now. Yeah. Uh, this is really, I would say, like a golden age. <laughs> golden age of <laughs> For podcasts. audio media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I hope everybody's staying connected yes. with friends and family mm-hmm. and... Yeah. Thank goodness for all these video chats. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine if this was and all like, the streamings? Like in 1982, we'd all be, it would be chaos, internal chaos. Nobody would be able to get on the, the family, the one phone in your family house yeah, to call other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As someone who is a natural extrovert, this will probably be, um, we'll say a difficult time for mm-hmm. Lauren. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, it's going okay. Like, you know, we live fairly close to each other and can like wave to each other from 
the street and <laughs> call and that kind of thing. It'll be fine. I'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, and we're all going to be great. And I hope you're all are staying clean and healthy and that uh, we're thinking of you. And, um, you know, while you're sitting at home listening to podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. I mean, you might as well. What are you? What else are you doing? <laughs> uh, uh, and thank you to everybody that's already done that. It's um, yes. very nice to to read those reviews. It's very nice. Thank you for all the kind emails mm-hmm. and and social media messages and and all of that is very spirit uplifting. Yes, it's very nice. So, uh, thanks so much, you guys, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.